I'm Amy Carson, and this is The Balance, Understanding Nonprofit Finance. In today's episode, Jessica Santana and Malik Neal join me to talk about managing explosive growth. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Balance. Our first guest today is Malik Neal. He is the executive director of the Philadelphia Bail Fund. Malik, thank you so much for being on the show. Glad to be here. Malik, could you just tell us a little bit about the Philadelphia Bail Fund, who you are, what you do, who you serve? So the Philadelphia Bail Fund started uh, in 2017, really with a simple idea that, that freedom should be free. And so In our country today, uh, hundreds of thousands of people sit in a jail cell simply because they can't afford to pay for their freedom. And the reason that is, is because the way in our country, uh, in most parts around the country, the way we determine whether or not someone can go home to their family, whether or not they can return to their job, is simply a monetary amount that the courts ask for. And so the Philadelphia Bail Fund began to really fight against that injustice. And we do that really in two ways. The first is we provide bail assistance to individuals who can't afford to pay bail so that they could come home and fight their cases from home. Uh, But ultimately our goal is to not exist, right? So to stop the need for a bail fund. So in addition to providing bail assistance, we also engage in strategic organizing to bring about an end to cash bail in Philadelphia. I know when we spoke and how we came together, um, it's just through, you had a remarkable experience last year, come May, June. Can you walk us through what happened? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we had started in 2017 and from 2017 to 2019, we were a completely volunteer run organization. And then I joined in 2019 as the only staff member, but I would say we were generally posting around 70 bales a year. So that was probably around you know, seventy to $80,000 a year. So a very small operation that was primarily run by volunteers. And then during the summer of last year, I remember looking at our bank account. I think we had about $40,000 in our bank account. And that was supposed to pay bails and pay me a, a meager salary. And then after the murder of George Floyd and the protests and uprisings that happened across the country, you know, we just got a lot of attention. So I remember within five days of all the protests, that bank account that had $40,000 suddenly was over 2 million. And I kept like, I kept looking and be like, this, this can't be right. You know, maybe, you know, there was some deposit put in our bank account by mistake, but it really was thousands of small donations from across the country and even outside the country of folks supporting our work. That's really awesome. This is like every small nonprofit executive director's dream to like wake up and have $2 million in the bank account pretty much overnight. Um, And that is a perfect segue to our next guest, Jessica Santana. She is the chief executive officer of America on Tech. She's a comparable story. So I thought that this would be a great conversation for today. So Jessica, thank you so much for participating. Welcome to the show. So nice to be here with you, Amy. Thank you. Jessica, can you tell us a little bit about America on Tech, who you are, what you do? 
Absolutely. So American Tech is a national nonprofit organization on a mission to decrease the racial wealth gap in underestimated communities. Our goal is to create pathways that are equitable so that young people in the communities that are oftentimes overlooked have opportunities to engage in innovation. We started this work seven years ago. It really came from a place of passion. It was on the back of Starbucks napkins. My co-founder and I, we were working in the private sector in technology and saw that there was a huge gap between where we were in our careers versus like where we actually were from in Brooklyn, New York. And our goal is to work with 16 to 24 year olds to make sure that at these very young ages, they know that they can be the designers and creators of technology. And for us, it's really retooling the educational status quo so that young people of color specifically have the knowledge, the skill sets, the mentoring, the networks and the access they need to thrive in the future of work. And Jessica, I know you two, and we started working together about three, four years ago, small nonprofit, roughly $200,000, $300,000 of annual income coming from a few foundations. Can you tell us a little bit about where you are now? Yeah. So over the last seven years, our growth went from just individual donations of like $10,000 in our first $10,000 in our first year in 2014. So now we're observing a $2.1 million budget. That's really exciting. And a lot of the growth has really happened over the past year or two. I believe year to year you've doubled, which is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, really. It really has been a wild ride, lots of growth, but really amazing time for our organization. So I think the the topic, once again, of today's discussion is talking about this kind of growth is exciting and it's every it's every executive director, every board member's dream. But how do you actually manage it? Because although it's wonderful and exciting, it's also extraordinarily stressful. And there's lots of different complexities and challenges that you have to think through in terms of thinking about long-term sustainability and how to really manage and steward the organization moving forward. So Malik, I'm going to kick it back to you you know, $2 million effectively overnight, what were some of the immediate challenges that you faced? Yeah, it's quite funny. Oftentimes I think, you know, in one way, it's a dream that any executive director or board member would want. From my perspective, it also brought a lot of anxiety (laughs) in terms of this is a lot of funds. There's a lot happening. We have very low capacity. So, It was very stressful, as you mentioned. Uh, One of the things that we realized, as I mentioned before, we were a very small operation. So our bookkeeping was an Excel sheet. Um, And so, you know, but when you get that amount of funds, I mean, you, you have to change that. And so one of the things we had to do was find a way to really make sure we are capturing all the donations because at the end of the year, we have to, you know, account for all that and also send donor receipts and those things. So I think for one of the first things we did was we said we had to hire a bookkeeper. I think another thing was trying to figure out a lot of the donations that we got came in primarily because of all the protests and there were protesters being arrested. So trying to figure out how you get that amount of income coming in, but also spending it in a way that is responsible to the folks who donated. So as I mentioned before, in 2019, we paid about 79 bales. In 2020, we paid 401. So it's almost a 400% increase. It really made us, as a board and organization, ask larger questions about what are our things we're lacking and how can we fill them with the amount of resources that we have. 
That makes sense. And resources, if I can piggyback on that point, Jessica, this is something that we have discussed frequently through the years. How do you staff? How do you think about staffing? What has been your thought process throughout all of this? Yeah, it's amazing because over the last year, not only did our budget double, but our staff also doubled. And so I think for us, one thing that I would say is that this funding actually came in at a in a very timely manner because we were in the process of kicking off a strategic planning process in 2021. And now we are full-blown in implementation of the strategic planning process. And for that, you know, as an executive director, we don't always have the capacity. Up until last year, I was still our CEO and director of development and reviewer of the grants. And so this year, you know, we made the concerted effort to actually use the funding that came in to actually um, have hire several key people at AOT that were going to help alleviate our capacity and also ensure that like for the years to come, the budget that we grew so rapidly was also going to be able to be sustained. And we knew that that was not going to happen if all of the all of the development actually stayed on me. And so this year, you know, we hired a director of development, um, a development and partnership manager, as well as a special project manager and executive assistant to help my co-founder and I. You know, when I think about uh, the things that they were that the things that they're working on for us around hiring my co-founder and I, we had a brainstorm session. We said, what are things that we're currently doing right now that we really should not be doing because it actually hinders the operations. Um, And we had really big whiteboards in our homes because we were not in our offices. We were still observing COVID. And we literally wrote down every single task that we were doing that we were not supposed to be doing and then coded it And that is how we ended up with these three key hires. But the one thing I'll say is that the good thing about having funds come through the door is that you can make bigger impact. The bad thing is is that you're getting funds during a time where the world is in crisis and turmoil. So to sustain that level of budget when, you know, things are going back to normal and the world is reopening was like a really big question for us. And I think for us, we realized that we needed to use this funding as an anchor to our next phase of growth, as opposed to just using it um, to make the, the impact that we were already having in our communities, which for us, we were proud about. But I think this, um, this funding was really used as like seed funding for the next phase of American Tech. So you've really thought about effectively taking the money and putting it in the bank and effectively let's build a surplus, which we always like to say, you should always try to have at least three to six months of operating cash on hand, which has been like invaluable for the groups that we work with throughout COVID. So let's build this, let's build the reserve, do some planning and spend the money later. Malik, what was your strategy? Yeah, I think similarly, one of the things, as I mentioned before, I was the only person, so I was paying bail, also trying to provide some supports to folks, also trying to write grants when I could. So it was very easy for me to figure out what are some things that one person could not do all of. And so we hired a operations coordinator to pay bail. So that person's responsible for paying bail. We hired a full-time support coordinator to provides post-release supports to everyone we bail out. And then, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that's really important for us is really doing organizing to, to end cash bail. So we also hired a community organizer. But I would say one of the things is that we had always been operating out, out of scarcity. So we can't do this, we couldn't do this. And I think one of the things that having resources enabled us to do 
was, you know, to dream bigger and think about what the next three to five years would look like. And so, which is something we not, we weren't able to do with limited funding. And so right now, you know, as an organization, we're thinking about what are our, what are our three-year goals? What exactly, you know, how do we get to ending cash bail, right? And so for us, that's going to be having the capacity and infrastructure to do our work. But also now we're thinking about, you know, in what ways can we invest in greater advocacy and communications plans so that, you know, basically no one in Philadelphia can say they haven't heard about the injustice of bail or how it needs to end. So we're both trying to figure out sort of how do we have the funds that can sustain us in this work, but also how do we use those funds to put ourselves out of work? (laughs) It's an interesting challenge there. You know, Malik, you brought up a good word, uh, which was infrastructure and thinking through the infrastructure investments that needed to be made. Can you talk a little bit about, particularly on the finance and accounting side, what infrastructure you needed to build effectively overnight? I know you mentioned that you hired a bookkeeper and you were using Excel sheets. What, What happened next? Yeah, so it was hiring a bookkeeper. We also hired a controller to um, just oversee our finances. We also hired an accountant to do our taxes. And one of the things is when you get that much funds in, you also have to go through an audit. So that accountant had to handle that process. But I would say those are sort of the big picture things. But one of the things that's a bit smaller, but equally important is questions about sort of how are we keeping documentation for all payments? You know, I'm still learning, but it was a real crash course in how to use QuickBooks. <laughs> so still learning that. But I think it was those, you know, bringing on those folks, but also figuring out sort of how, our, how we can change our processes in a way that can make this easier. And so that required sort of how do we retain documents? How do we share them? How do we make sure that we're capturing all the information so that, you know, during an audit and those things, we could have all that information readily available. And on this point of infrastructure, Jessica, can you maybe talk a little bit about some of the procedures that you've put in place, some of the systems that you've implemented, what's worked, even what hasn't worked? Yeah, absolutely. This was the year that we decided, okay, like donor box has been great, you know, housing our letters of acknowledgments and grants on Google Drive has been great, but we actually need a more sophisticated system now that we have a dedicated development team. And so we are now in the process of actually um, developing the Salesforce because we know that now it is a lot more robust and a lot more tracking that our current systems just don't have the opportunity to like tell a story of our finances in real time the way that we want to anymore because there's just too many of them. I think another thing I'll say is we have some really amazing bookkeepers who actually keep our you know finances up to par. And I also think that we, you know, over the last two years now have gotten the board actively involved in the finances where our treasurer is sitting on every single monthly, um, you know, reconciliation meeting. He is having his quarterly meetings. And so his fiscal oversight of American Tech, along with ours, um, as long uh, and as well as our finance committee has also given us, um, you know, the motivation that we need to uh, really take care of this side of the house because I mean it can get it can get insane when you are working with so many people who are giving funding and are also expecting things um, back from you 
because they are donors to your organization. You know, one of the things for us is, Jessica reminded me, one of the things we did was we brought on a consultant to really build out the sales force for us. So capturing, it was tailor-made to what we needed. So when was bail paid, you know, on whose card was it paid? Who do we refer this person to? What was the source of referral? And so that was really, really helpful. And we also went from having about 2,000 donors in 2019 to 50,000 in 2020. So we had to find a way, a system that can track all that. Because before we had so little donors that we didn't necessarily have a system to track what was our contact with them? Was the Alange letter sent? Do we have a copy of it? So we had donor box, but then we moved to a new sort of sophisticated CRM so that we can really engage with the folks who donated to us. It forced us to really think, you know, we needed much more sophisticated systems than we had before. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And it's, this is infrastructure and when to effectively upgrade your systems is something that every small nonprofit and small business struggles with. One thing I'll say is that you have to choose, especially in the early stages, you have to choose what works for you because Salesforce back in the day, you know, when we were a very small organization would not have worked for us. You know, it's a very complicated tool. It is very robust. And we actually would be spending more time developing the Salesforce as opposed to developing the funding sources we needed to justify why Salesforce was needed. So I think in every stage of a nonprofit's development of systems, they need to ask themselves, you know, what is it that I actually need to be effective in this time? And then start building technology around those systems as time passes and always consistently evaluate whether or not the current tools are actually necessary or if they actually hinder performance. So switching gears a little bit, I think we've really focused on some of the challenges and the structural complexities that have had to be overcome over the past couple of years. But I want to think maybe more or talk more about the future. And, you know, Jessica, you and I have discussed this at at length also through the years, just how, from a fundraising perspective, how, how do you raise money when you've had strong fundraising success in the past? And so... I'm curious what what strategy, some of the challenges that you faced here, the strategies that have worked. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I will say that like American Tech has never really had up until this year, um, like a strong, like fundraising plan. I will be fully transparent in that we knew how much we needed to get every single year and we knew how much we needed to spend every single year. The vehicle by which we do that, though, was always really unclear. And one thing that we did in preparation for the launch of the strategic plan was that we said, okay, we need to understand where we're trying to go on an annual basis and have growth that is incremental, but not growth like how we experienced the past year because the past year was really successful financially, but we also need to be mindful in that it came with a lot of quick work, a lot of work that, um, you know, my co-founder and I had to carry on our backs and it was really long days. And so really thinking about like the problem that we wanted to solve and like, thinking about the incremental growth over the next three years, as opposed to having injection and cap injections of capital that were going to be huge and then also really difficult to manage. So 
back in April, when we hired our director of development, we actually had the opportunity to work in partnership with Deloitte through a pro bono project where they actually developed a huge fundraising plan for us over the next three years. And so we have now really sophisticated targets for 2022, 2023, and 2024. Um, And so I think for us, you know, in development, developing this plan, we said, you know, what were the three revenue streams that we think we can work on over the next three years that can get us to the goal budget that we have by the end of 2024? So there's going to be a series of events that we do. There's going to be a series of key hires that we're going to make that are going to be focusing specifically on these revenue streams. And I'm just really excited, um, you know, for this phase of our work, because it feels like we have a lot of systems in place and a lot of people to carry out those systems. I think that for us, the plan in and of itself is a tool to keep you accountable um, to the goals that you set out for yourself, because a lot of times we are so stuck in the day-to-day that if you don't have documentation that says this is the direction of where I'm headed, and you don't have like that base to go back to that says like, you know, is are, is the work you're doing actually meaningful and getting you to the goal? Sometimes you can get lost in the sauce of fundraising, which That is what we're trying to avoid over the next three years. Right. And I know a lot of organizations that I work with, especially smaller organizations, are fearful to ask for money if their balance sheet or statement of financial position is too strong. So Jessica, you previously mentioned that a big part of your strategic plan is just let's save and use the money later, which implies that you're going to have a strong cash balance on your statement of financial position. How do you, and you have to submit audited financial statements to foundations probably almost all of the time. Has anyone ever come back to you and said, no, you have too much money. I'm not going to give you anything. I mean, some people have definitely made the comment. And what I say to them is you would not be asking this question if we were a for-profit entity. And you have to, you have to understand that we have to have a rainy day fund. You know, there's going to be a time where you know, America on tech work might not be as sexy anymore, or me as a leader might not be able to have the capacity to fundraise, or maybe we're running into um, obstacles with our corporate sponsors because there's a shift in, you know, grant making and what they are choosing to align to, and maybe we no longer fit in their portfolios. And I think that it is incumbent on foundations to understand that nonprofits need to have dollars in the bank account for the days where things might get really difficult. And so what we did was that this year, we are actually making an intentional decision to, by the end of this year, allocate that funding to a board-designated endowment. Um, Because as a nonprofit, you're supposed to spend your money for sure, but you're also supposed to plan for the longevity of our organization rather than always thinking about the spend. Exactly. So that's, that's the way that we've thought about it on our end. It was beautifully said. Thank you. Malik, your thoughts? I think the challenge for us was in 2020, we had this moment where the country's eyes and sort of consciousness was centered around police violence and the uh, injustice of our criminal legal system. And that's what really sparked so many people to give to us, which was great. But I think the challenge for us was, you know, how do you keep those folks giving to you? after that moment passed? How do you sustain that? And so I think that's been the challenge for us. So one of the things that we did, our sort of goal was let's reach as many of these folks as we can to really share with them about our work. Because I think a lot of folks 
they just found us online and, and clicked to donate, but I don't think they really understood sort of what the bail fund is, what our mission is, our work. So really trying to be sort of outward facing in terms of here's our work, here's why it's important, here's why you should donate. Another thing we did was we had our first kind of donors briefing where we invited all donors to come virtually to give a presentation about our work. And we had some of the folks we bail out come and speak as well. So I think that was very helpful in trying to really give folks a better picture of our organization. One of the things, too, is that the bail fund, 99% of our donations are individual donations. So we, at least in 2019, we really did not do any foundations. And that was primarily because we really were volunteer run primarily and, you know, really didn't have much, much operationally. So one of the things we're looking into now is really upping our application for grants. And so we've been doing that a bit this year and have gotten some grants to, to, to do our work. But I think the key for us is how do we really engage with the many donors we have to really, you know, have those not be one-time donations, but sort of build a sort of lasting relationship where folks can invest in our work. Makes sense. Um, so I actually, I think this has been fantastic. And just one maybe final question to each of you, Malik, I'll start with you. As we now end 2021 and move into 2022, what are you most excited about uh, with the Philadelphia Bail Fund? What, is there a program or a fundraising uh, campaign that you're undertaking? What's got you most excited? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I'm particularly excited about now since we have capacity, we're able to meet, we created a leaders organizing team and those are leaders being the folks that we bailed out. And so because we had the capacity and we hired a full-time community organizer, he now meets bi-weekly with the folks we bail out and their families to really do sort of thinking about sort of what is bail, but also what can we as a community do to end cash bail? And so it's a lot about sort of building community power, leadership, and capacity. And so one of the things I'm particularly excited about, which is only made possible through all the resources we got last year, is not only how do we make the bail fund stronger, but also how do we build power in community of folks who have been impacted to really get us to that goal. And so I think our for the organization, I think that's going to be our focus because for us, that's the only way change is going to happen by building power and directly impact the communities and having them be the leaders in this work. And so that's one thing I'm particularly excited about coming here. That's great. Thank you. Jessica. I think there's so many things that we're excited about for America on tech. To be honest with you, I think it's our programs. I think it's the strategic plan. I also think that right now we just have a team that feels very dedicated to the work and that feels really good. And I also think that maybe selfishly the thing that I am looking forward to in this season is being able to tell more stories about our work in a way that in the past I've not been able to. You know, I would love a world where the data that we have at America on Tech is accessible, you know, to the public so that people understand the real issues that young people of color face in trying to access uh, careers in technology. And so, you know, a really big push for the strategic plan is that we set an intentional goal of saying, you know, in the next three years, we want to leverage our expertise to advocate for 
resources and change because so much of what we do is internal and with the community and with the students, which for us, we realize that our, our the community and the students oftentimes are not the ones that hold the dollars. And so in order for us to be able to mobilize and create the change, it has to go to the, the, the data that that we're collecting and the research that we have has to go to the funders and it has to go to the politicians and the policymakers that actually create conditions for young people to either sink or swim. And so for us, I think that so many things uh, to be excited about, but maybe the most exciting thing is the the intentional approach that we're taking to be more public about the issues at the, the issues that our young people face as it relates to racial justice and the future of work. That's great. All right. Well, I want to thank you both, Jessica Santana, Malik Neal. Thank you so much for being on today's episode. This was fantastic. Thanks for having us. for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, and this episode was produced by David Hoffman and Alex Brower. If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps, and please leave a rating and a review. See you next week. <laughs>